Power Hour. Coal. Oil. Natural gas. Power Hour, the show where today's top energy experts break down today's top energy issues. No sound bites, no talking points, no nonsense, no BS, no softball questions, no vagueness, just in-depth analysis and ruthless clarity. Here's your host, Alex Epstein. Welcome back to Power Hour. I'm your host, Alex Epstein. Today on Power Hour, we're going to discuss a topic that we haven't discussed in the past. We're going to be discussing a certain aspect of wind power, and that is what is it like to live near wind turbines? Now, on several shows in the past, we've talked about the inefficiency of what are often called renewables and what should be called unreliables. Uh, wind and solar in particular, the most glorified forms of energy in our civilization, and yet some of the most unproductive, inefficient forms of energy in our civilization. So we've talked about what we call the diluteness problem, the fact that the energy comes in in very dilute form, the intermittency problem, the fact that it comes in in unreliable form, and the general uh, uselessness that this uh, creates in terms of its its viability as a as a as an energy source on the grid, and really how it's just a gigantic burden that is not worth bearing, that doesn't do anything constructive. Um, but it does do a lot that is destructive, and in particular, uh, it has been known to harm the health of many local residents. Uh, a couple weeks ago, after speaking in Canada, I got an email from a woman named Colette McLean, who told me about some of her harrowing experiences with wind companies, wind turbines, uh, the government of Ontario and uh, Canada where she lives. And I thought, let's do, let's do another power hour. Let's do one on this. So it's good to be back. We'll be back with Colette McLean on the other side. Power Hour, because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. Joining us now on Power Hour is Colette McLean. Colette, welcome to Power Hour. Thank you for having me, Alex. All right. So I think we, we've got a really interesting story uh, to learn about today. But uh, before we get to that, tell the audience about uh, how we met, because I, I got a great email from you. Uh, I, we've, I don't think we've ever actually been introduced in person, but uh, we uh, met, so to speak, while I was in, in Canada. So tell us about that. Well, I, I, I saw your presentation uh, via internet on, at Idea City in Toronto, and uh, and I have actually been following your Facebook and your Twitter and your websites um, in my attempts to try and inform myself about renewable energies and fossil fuel usage in, in today's society, and your name has come up, and... Um, um, I've been really intrigued by your book, The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels, and how it re- how this whole mindset has reflected on the use of renewable f- renewable energy, and it has that that stems from my personal experience of having to deal with wind energy development in my my area. There was um, approximately nine years ago now. Uh, a project was announced for my area, and 
um, once I started investigating into the issues surrounding wind energy, I come to realize that this is not a uh, this was not a, a good thing uh, for my community or for me as a as a small farmer. We're, we're a small I farm in southwestern Ontario with my husband and son, and um, we were approached by a wind developer to um, to host turbines on our our land. And then once started investigating the contractual issues, I come to realize that um, and that is it's not what it's represented to be. So what 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 um what, what just take us through what it was represented to be because I I imagine it was it was portrayed as as an almost uh, magical and oh, certainly yeah. ethical opportunity. So I'm curious. I've never you know, had that kind of land where wind turbine operator came to me and if they know who I knew who I was, they probably wouldn't come anyway. Uh, yeah. But I'm curious what, what it's like. Yeah, well, it was it was certainly magic, very um, utopian type of thinking, right? And it, it just seemed like it was a great idea. I mean, I, I was indoctrinated into thinking that we needed to divest ourselves away from fossil fuels. It was That was going to be a good thing for our environment, and we needed to do green, clean, free energy, right? And that's how it was presented, that it was going to address a major issue for our society, and I felt compelled to follow up on that when they approached us. Went to the community meetings and and um, originally thought this was a good idea, and it was going to be a very positive development for my community and for me uh, as a... Um, you know, as a host for turbines, potential host for turbines. So what, what were the specific uh, claims that they made? Well, you know, that it was going to provide our community, number one, with, um, you know, um, um, obviously revenues, right, for the, the land, the land leaseholders, right, where uh, farmers would benefit from sharing in the profit of generating clean, green, uh, renewable energy that is going to help, number one, abate uh, greenhouse gas emissions that were burning up our, our helping to increase global warming. And I really believe that that was the case, that that, that um, you know, issue was going to uh, harm our environment. And um, I wanted to be a part of that originally. And then when I started investigating more and more into it, learning more and more about it, it was completely the opposite. So um, just in terms of the chronology of it, they so they come in, they offer you, you know, they, they make this sales pitch, they offer you terms. Did you did you sign a contract with no, them? No, never did. I they give you first of all what I, what they call an option, right? And the option is stays viable for five years. Where they investigate, the company actually starts investigating the region whether or not it's suitable for wind energy. So they're putting up uh, towers, masts, um, anometers, right, to determine whether or not wind speeds were sufficient. So they, they get a lot of growers signed on to these option lease agreements, they call them, and um, give you, um, I think it's $100 an acre per year for doing that. And they within that time frame, they decide whether or not the project is viable, and almost inevitably it is. It always is because the subsidies that they receive from, in Ontario, with through um, with our government, they provide them with really substantial uh, subsidies to go forward on those kinds of projects. 
so it's very attractive financially for them. And, um, and uh, you know, um, you end up um, getting kind of taken up by the idea that this can provide money, tax-based money for my municipality, as well as money for me as a, as a farmer. You know, farming is a tough business. It's hard to make money from year to year, and having that kind of steady income was very attractive. So why, why didn't you sign the contract? I'm sorry, what? Oh, what? you said you didn't sign the contract, though. How come? Well, we started examining the, the, the clauses. We actually um, brought the, the contract, my husband and I, to our lawyer, and he referred us to um, their division in corporate law, right, or corporate contracts. And this, this lawyer had expertise in reviewing contracts that were for land lease agreements for natural gas pipelines, electrical right-of-ways, railroad right-of-ways. So he understood a lot of the, the clauses, right, that were for land lease agreements. And he pointed out several things like first rights, these clauses such as first rights refusal, which um, actually means that when it comes time to sell my land, the company has the first dibs, the developer, the wind developer has to have the first dibs on the purchase of that land. Uh, things like postponements of mortgages, where if um, I had a mortgage on our farm, that the mortgager would take um, the second place to the, la to the wind developer so that they can ensure... The whole idea was, I believe, is because they want to make sure that they don't lose the rights to have their turbines on your land. But it, nothing is terribly is nothing illegal, but it's just kind of unethical and very um, uh, nefarious in the long run, right? It really puts in, it really put into question for me who was going to be owning agricultural lands in 20 years time, 40 years time when these contracts uh, supposedly uh, expire. So what happens to the, the turbines themselves? Because unlike the magical claims, these things don't last forever. No, they don't. <laughs> and uh, that's the other thing. The decommissioning clauses that were in the contract um, really didn't seem to cover a lot of uh, potential problems. For example, they said that they would take them down um, if, they, if they decided to abandon the project. But it didn't say specifically if they had the money to be able to take them down. So I kept on asking, well, what happens if you, in 20 or 30 or 40 years' time, you go defunct as a company? What am I supposed to do? And they just kept on saying really silly things like, well, you could use the turbine as scrap metal, and you'll be able to recoup the cost of that through the scrap metal of the turbine. And I'm thinking, like, yeah, well, it costs me a lot of money to have a crane come in, you know, how many dollars per hour to be able to do that. It just was really silly um, comments back or just very disingenuous replies that just didn't seem like it was based in the real world. You know, it, it was just like a slick snake oil salesman uh, giving you really um, on-the-surface kind of statements that in the, until you sort of think about it, you realize, oh, that's kind of... Full of BS, right? Yeah, I think it's a lot of it is inherent in the nature of a subsidized industry because a lot yeah. of what a subsidized industry is is it's a 
it's, it's a temporary form of competitiveness because you're not relying on the efficiency of your product relative to others. You're relying on the support of government coercion to take money away from some people and give it to you. And okay. so the, the types of people who get in that kind of thing, which we can really call a racket, are likely not to think things through to the future because they're, it's, it's not as if they really have a 20 or 40 year time horizon, which no. is very different from say, at least, a, now this, this is what the oil industry is accused of in terms of, often the term wildcatter actually is used to apply right. to this kind of dynamic. And it, and it certainly can exist uh, in, in uh, any industry. What you find in others is, is practices or even laws about, you know, th there are certain provisions to be made for when you're done with the area, this is what has to happen. And, this, and, and they make, certainly in nuclear, they have to make financial provisions from the beginning for how to uh, decommission them. So it's, it, but it's not surprising that this kind of thing, both both with the uh, so-called entrepreneurs, but also the government, you know, they are all acting on with non-productive motives. They're they're trying to get away with this thing to make themselves look good, to make a quick buck, or or to win a quick vote, uh, but with something that is is wildly econ uneconomic and and ultimately irrational. So it's I don't think it's any surprise that the government kind of will let any them get away with a lot of stuff because they want these mandates to be met. They want to be able to say that they're doing something and, and since they're promoting an inferior technology, a lot of corners have to be cut. Mm -hmm. And I guess what I found really uh, challenging was um, when I was trying to debate this with my local council, my rep, you know provincial representatives, is uh, they uh, they they saw my information strictly as you're just a bluebird, you know, you're negative, and you and you end up being labeled as this classic NIMBY, right? Not in my backyard, where you don't, the real reason why you're against this is because you don't want turbines in your backyard, and for some reason, that was portrayed as being uh, a bad thing, right? Like what 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 decent-minded person or normal-thinking person? Would actually want a 120 meter uh, pole, uh, 600 meters from their back door. I do not understand that, right? Uh, unless, of course, like my neighbor who is making, you know, at minimum thirty thousand dollars a year uh, off of his turbines, and and um, I guess that was enough for him to be able to put up with these major structures, you know, twirling over your head every day and disrupting your life in terms of noise and having an impact on the environment. I mean, this project that I'm surrounded by is the, the small survey they did or post-construction survey they did on avian wildlife showed that there was an unsustainable level of bat mortality because of them, and yet nothing's been done to stop or alleviate that problem. Well, one thing that's... I, I want to get into some of the, the local problems, particularly noise. But one thing that's interesting to observe about the NIMBY accusation and, and, and on the flip side, the lack of NIMBY opposition and this kind of thing is, is how yeah. much the morality of the technology influences whether there's NIMBY opposition. Because I've, I've heard from energy companies that I've worked with, particularly oil companies, that 
well, every, you know, people just always object to things in their backyard and there's no way to get around that. And I say, well, like, you know, they, they have a different objection to an oil rig than they do to a hospital because if they think that something is good, they're much more likely to embrace it and even to put pressure on their neighbors to embrace right. it. So I think it's a really interesting example in, in your case of because they were doing, quote, the right thing. Uh, you know, you were supposed to accept, be willing to accept a lot of, uh, a lot of inconvenience. And you see with things like bats where, uh, you know, if, if, uh, if an oil spill killed two bats, that would be national news and grounds for shutting down you know, the most important industry in the world. Uh, but, you know, if these things are shredding through bats, well, that's, you know, that's, you have to okay. break a yeah. few eggs uh, yeah. to make your, your wind energy omelet. So in terms of, of breaking eggs, uh, well, to switch the metaphor, the thing I'm most interested in with these kinds of things is what is the effect on on the local human population? So uh, tell us about, let's start off with the noise issue. Well, the noise for me uh, is, uh, I, I find it disruptive. Uh, but it's also um, because it's it, it, they've been sh they've been able to show that it's it's mostly low frequency and infrasound level noises that are disrupting people. Um, it's very difficult to translate to the layperson what the noise is really like because it's not a huge audible um, noise. Sometimes it is on occasion. There's especially. Uh, when there's bad weather, there's a, a huge audible component, but there's also this component where it's kind of incessant, more vibrational kind of uh, feeling, ear pressure, ear ticking for me. I also developed um, grinding my grinding my teeth now, which I never did all my life. You know, I'm I'm in my 50s and I never grinded my teeth before turbines showed up in my neighborhood. So it makes you wonder what are the effects. In the long term, I also have had been in contact with a lot of people who are really affected because I believe they have a, a higher sensitivity than myself to noise and to um, the low frequency aspect because they're suffering uh, to the point where they're leaving their homes, uh, headaches and nosebleeds and um, a lot of sleepless nights to the point where they have to, they've had to leave their homes. And uh, that's what's disconcerting for me is that, and, it, and you know, I'm, I'm, it, it's a smaller number of people that are being affected that way. So it's very easy to discount. It just seems like politicians or um, health officials or anybody who's in an official position can't seem to react until it's a large number of people being affected. I don't think and, that's what it is because if you look at, if you look at the, say claims about coal plants and asthma and certain kinds of things which uh, have very dubious correlations, sometimes negative right. correlations. Um, yes. You know, every you know, crackpot theory is manufactured and used to guide policy in terms of uh, any amount of anything coming from any fossil fuel plant or any kind of radiation emanating from any nuclear plant. Uh, that's mm -hmm. nothing resembling the kind of, of things you're talking about. I mean, it's just very, very dubious uh, statistical manipulation in yes. in most cases. And yet that is, 
you know, that is a front page story of the New York Times if you can get it. But I don't think yeah. there have been too many front page stories in the you know the New York Times or the Globe and Mail uh, about uh, about that. So what do what do they say when you bring this to their attention? Because it's a basic rule of building things is you're not allowed to significantly endanger, in, including harm the health of local uh, people who are already there. Well, it, it, they don't believe you. They just simply do not believe you. I mean, I here in Ontario, the only recourse that residents have to be able to complain about the noise is to call what they call the Spills Action Center number with the Ministry of the Environment and Climate Change in Ontario. And dozens and dozens of people um, within Ontario's project areas of where turbines ex exist have been you know, they all started calling, and I did as well. I called and explained to them that I found the noise disruptive, and I believe that they're working without outside of the compliant noise levels. And um, they just say they record that, and nothing is ever done. There's no follow-up. There's no follow-through. There's no recourse. I had in Ministry of the Environment officers come to my location to come and, and listen for themselves, you know, for the to the noise, and tell me that, oh, that's about the same level that I live with in my backyard in downtown Windsor, you know, the, the city of Windsor. Like, I'm thinking, like, yeah, but I didn't sign up for that. <laughs> you know, I live in, in rural Ontario, and I'm, I want my peace and quiet. And, on, um, and also, you're not talking about this infrasound level that's waking me up and my husband in, in the middle of the night or giving, you know, me ear ticking and... And uh, um, uh, air pressure, you know, like it's just not uh, what I want in my life. And I feel that the quality of my life has been uh, removed because of these turbines. And they don't seem to think that that's worth complaining about, that I should be sucking that up and, and moving on, you know. Is it, it's, it sounds like it's not qualitatively the same as living in a, in a city. I mean, I don't, I don't know what kinds of noise issues people have with well, I mean, living. Well, they've come out with studies to show that if you live in a high traffic area, you are disrupted by noise. Like noise has an effect. I don't know if you've ever um, I've read any of Arlene Bronsaff's uh, research. She worked, she worked with the city of New York on how schools, school children were being affected by railroad uh, traffic noise. You know, and this is background noise that children were living with on a daily basis in schools and they were able to she was able to show how cognitively these children were performing under the the norms um, because of the noise so they they instituted uh, requirements for buffers on railways uh, nearby railways uh, and making sure that you know there was these um, paddings in 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 the, the wheels um, uh, so that the noise levels would go down but for some reason, the noise that, what happens, I find, is that when you have people come out during the day, a nice high atmospheric pressure day, right, nice and sunny, you, all you hear is this gentle swoosh. Mm. So, what the, and they stand there for 10 minutes and say, there's no problem. But they're not living with it on a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week basis, where it's hugely variable, like you'll have an hour of pretty intensive noise and then it goes down. You'll have within uh, a space of a few minutes this really high noise 
and then it'll go down. And because of the way the guidelines, the noise guidelines work in Ontario, um, because they, they average the noise levels over an, a, a period of an hour, uh, that is, could be in compliance, even though during that hour it may have peaked above the appropriate noise levels two or three times. So this is the problem. The assessment, the way they assess for noise uh, is completely inadequate and it doesn't take into the, as the aspect of the repetitive nature of that noise. It's another example of how little people who claim to, who, who bring up justifications such as this oil rig is bad because it's creating a lot of noise or while, you know, this fracking operation while you're doing the completion process for X number of days or weeks, we're against it because it's creating noise. And then you see, well, it doesn't create any more noise than uh, a lot of the other things that go on and it's temporary and, and in terms of damage to people, if there's any at all, it's very small compared to something like wind. So what, what people are, there are always these rationalizations for why I'm against fossil fuels, why I'm supposedly for wind power. But the, we often see that the rationalizations don't hold up and they're applied extremely inconsistently. And it's not as if these officials are really thinking to themselves, hey, how do I make people as healthy and safe as possible? How do I prevent dangers from any source? They're using alleged dangers selectively to persecute forms of energy that are actually practical. Oh, absolutely. I agree with you there. The, the, the way they... Um, um, I, I personally believe that the wind industry has done just an exceptionally good job of marketing. You know, they, they've been able to touch on those key emotional points that a lot of people share who care about their environment, who care about their world, and have been able to show that things like wind energy are addressing those key points. And, and it's so easy to fall into that, and especially when you, when you lack the time and the abilities to investigate more fully. And that's what they rely on, right? Is that people, you know, that's why papers, are, when you think about it, um, papers are, are declining in popularity because a lot of people are getting their quick bites from either TV or internet um, or radio and because they don't have the time to fully absorb all the information that's available anymore on these issues. So, yeah, the, the wind industry have been just extremely good at it. They, they know their marketing. <laughs> what else has happened uh, notably since these turbines got installed in, in your area? So we, we talked about the noise, but what other things have happened? Well, I feel it's disrupted my community, my community relations. You know, I, I, uh, my neighbor who has the three closest to me is actually my husband's first cousin. And as a result of him wanting those turbines and we not wanting them, it's put a huge strain. Like we don't talk to each other anymore while we used to share um, farming uh, a lot together and we were actually like close, almost as, uh, not only close family, but close friends where we socialized a lot together. I mean, he got so upset with us, he finally pulled away 
from our combining services. We used to combine for him, and he pulled away from that because he felt that we were so upset with him that he felt it was time to move on to somebody else, even though we were doing a good job and doing... uh, Whenever he needed to have his combining done, we were there, and and we felt we were giving him good service. He never complained about that. He actually, uh, you know, admired the fact, told us, you know, you you did great for us, but we feel that it's necessary to move on because of the turbines. You don't agree with us, so it was like as it was to me, it was like a slight uh, because we disagreed with him, and um, as a result, we don't talk anymore. And in the few exchanges that we have had, it you know, it's been some colorful language in the in those exchanges, unfortunately. Um, and there's several. I know that uh, anybody I've ever talked to that, um, you know, they'll they'll say, well, there's no point in fighting it. But then, in the same breath, you know, people that live with these turbines and other project areas in my area, uh, they'll say, well, there's no point in fighting it because it's not going to come. To, these things are not going to come down. But in the same breath, they'll complain about how they can't sleep how they're finding it disruptive, and how they hate the fact that these are things are costing Ontario ratepayers an arm and a leg to be able to support them. They all know it. It seems like everybody is consistently understanding that things like green energy have really pushed Ontario's electricity market to the point, to the breaking point, where costs of of having electricity have skyrocketed since the inception of these things. And in Ontario, because we have the stupid Green Energy Act, we are mandated to have these things. We have no choice as communities to say yes or no. And the, the government likes to try and say, well, yeah, you have input, but that input is just lip service. We can't actually say no. So uh, since most of our listeners are not in Canada and certainly not in Ontario, uh, can you give us some background on the green energy laws and then... Uh, explain a little bit about what their consequences have been for for people who actually have to pay for electricity? Well, uh, the Green Energy Act is, uh, was instituted in 2009. So prior to that, like this, the project I'm surrounded by was grandfathered in, and, and that's when no bylaws, no municipal bylaws, no local government could say no, could institute any kind of, of uh, bylaw to say no to the turbines because the province mandated through this Green Energy Act that we had to have at least 20% of our electricity market available to um, or or supplied by renewable energy. And in the process, they also instituted uh, what they call the Feed and Tariff Program, the FIT program, which provides 13.5 cents per kilowatt hour to the wind industry, and at that time was 80 cents for solar panels per kilowatt hour. 80 cents? 80 cents. So, yeah. I mean, just just for context, everyone, the average price of electricity in the, in the yeah. United States is 10 cents a kilowatt yeah. hour. Well, in Ontario, it wasn't much different at that time. It was actually our hourly, what they call the um, hourly Ontario average price was about 3 to 4 cents. And depending on the type of generator, be it nuclear or uh, hydro, um, they, they average between um, 3 and 6 cents. Um, per kilowatt hour. Now, on top of of that, we have the delivery charges and so forth. But yes, the the um, wind energy was getting thirteen and a half cents, and 
and from uh, solar at that time was 80 cents. Now that has come down to approximately 54 cents a kilowatt hour for solar. But just so people know, I mean, just pause on that for a second. I mean, imagine somebody just jacks up your electricity bill by mm. a factor of, of five. And, right. you know, I'm here in California, so we already have had that happen to a significant uh, extent. But you hear all these, and, and then this, this becomes this this heroic story of Ontario's forward thinking. And I get interviewed about this once in a while, particularly in Canada, just about, well, isn't Ontario doing a fantastic job with its green energy policy? And I say, well, I don't think it's going too well if you care about being able to afford electricity to improve your life. Yeah, and it's very difficult to get, like if you go onto what they call um, Ontario Independent Systems Operator or Electrical um, Systems Operators site, which they call Sigration, and you watch how, because um, it gives you the prices of the um, um, of each of each generator that they receive and how much they're producing. You can see that it, the, the if you start tracking that, you can see the enormous disparities in what generation is being provided uh, in terms of revenues. Right, it's it's just horrendous. In fact, I was just reading a little while ago how uh, electricity. We often here in Ontario are, are subsidizing the U.S. market uh, in Michigan and uh, and in New York as well, I believe. And where um, because we wind is pushing the system, wind and solar are pushing the system to the point where because they have to balance the grid, right? The we're dumping excess electrical generation to the U.S. at less than the price that we're paying the wind developers and the, the solar uh, development as well. To, so there were, we were giving it to the U.S. for two and a half cents. So I don't understand where the government thinks that that can be sustained for a long term uh, in any way, shape, or form. For all, so the, for all the talk about sustainability, which I think is a horrible concept because it it exalts doing the same thing over and over as the ideal. Uh, mm -hmm. The sustainability policies, because they exalt things that impoverish people to the extent they're implemented, uh, are are unsustainable. I mean, they're as unsustainable as any uh, and, bad and business. What, what's sad, I find, is that the response is not to change that policy or to remove it, but to add another type of you know uh, scheme in place to subsidize uh, people who can't afford, um, like for in Ontario, we are actually subsidizing industrial rates as ratepayers so that we can offset the higher costs to them. So, so they don't all leave the province? Beg pardon? So that they don't all leave the province? Yeah, if they don't all leave the province, exactly. Like just on the weekend, uh, I was just reading Parker Glantz, uh, I'm sure you've, you've heard of him, he's um, he does sort of the emphasizes more of the economic feasibility of of renewable energy, and he just on the weekend for the um, American um, Independence Day celebrations, we've supplied 5.5 million after tax dollars to the American uh, uh, grid system. That's costing Ontario's that much money to be able to do that, so that you can balance the grid because wind is pushing. Um, the grid to be out of balance all the time. So what they do is they end up, because Ontario is actually close to 75% emission-free, 
with um, nuclear and with um, hydro. And because of that, um, nuclear, as you, as you know, has to always be running because you can't ramp up and down to fall the wind. Um, we're having to, they're having to dump the hydro and steam off nuclear to be able to allow wind and solar onto the grid because we're mandated by that Green Energy Act to have those uh, elements on our grid. So it just absolutely makes no sense to me if you, if you examine it and why we keep on doing this when I, 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 all I can say is that it's got to be money for somebody somewhere, be it a government official or be it uh, developers who are padding coffers for government officials. That's all I can think of as being the reason why this continues. Well, see, I, I, I think money has, has a role, has a, is, and this comes up with a lot of guests, interestingly, because I, I tend to downplay money as a cause, or at least as a fundamental cause, although it's certainly in all of these things. I, I tend to see ideas as, as causes, and particularly the fact that ideas are connected to self-esteem. So when I see people uh, exalting wind and clinging on to it and not, not being too concerned with the negative consequences, I feel like those people, whether they're officials or even regular citizens, certainly uh, green activists, they, they believe that they are good because they oppose fossil fuels oh, and because yeah. they and support that's a very wind. Powerful feeling, isn't it? When you think about it, it's a hugely powerful feeling. You can see that that played out completely on the weekend. Uh, Jane Fonda came up uh, in on into Canada to protest um, fossil fuels, right, and promote the the diatribes about you know renewable energy and how that's going to provide us with all sorts of jobs and we need to get away from fossil fuels and all the money that we put into fossil fuels need to go into the renewable energy. And they had an interview on our national telev television, CBC, and she talked about exactly that, how she wanted to make sure she did everything she could for, uh, I don't want my grandchildren to think that I didn't do the right thing in the, for the future. I'll make sure her grandchildren know what she did. A big pardon? I said, I'll make sure that her grandchildren know what she did. Yes. Please do, yeah. <laughs> so it was, it, it was uh, you know, and then, you know, she has, you know, of course, in the background, David Suzuki and, and Naomi Klein in the background talking about how this is all important. And then part of that is she's hugging a Native person, right? Um, because we have, we have huge problems with uh, uh, land claims with the Natives in Canada with regards to the pipelines and the oil sands development. Uh, so, and they're, to me, they're being used as Ponzi's, right? They're uh, as part of this whole scheme. And uh, I don't know how to, I get, you know, it gets me really pretty exasperated just listening to it all and, and trying to, to find ways in my own world to be able to counter that. You know, I'm only one little you know, an old farm lady in southwestern Ontario that, that uh, you know, I can, my, my world is limited, obviously, and, uh, but the pro and the problem seems so big sometimes that it's overwhelming. So what's the, most, what's the thing you've done that has had the most success at informing people or, or persuading them or getting them to act? 
the most success? Yeah. Um, I would say the one-on-one conversations. When people ask me the question, and why are you so um, against this wind development, if they are really genuine in the, in the question, and I give them the lowdown, all of a sudden it seems to click. But that's the only time that I've ever had any kind of success. Any of the other... When I've tried to speak at council meetings, county council meetings, um, gone to developer um, open houses, tried to speak up and have, you know, put myself out there, embarrass myself completely, um, and be vilified and denigrated in the process, that never works. It never seems to work. At least not in my eyes. I mean, I, I always walk away feeling pretty pretty horrible because it, 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 you know, it has affected me, I feel, emotionally. And um, I, I feel like my, my self-esteem has taken a big hit over it and to the point where you know, I don't want to, to talk about it almost anymore. So the fact that I'm doing this today surprises me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad you are. I'll definitely get the story out to well, more I, I people. Well, I want to thank you for all your efforts. Believe me, I am so impressed with your ability to to verbalize it and rationalize it properly and, and, and critically, you know, look at both sides and understand what's at stake. I, I just think that your approach is really uh, genuine and um, very rooted in the real world. Yeah. I'm, I'm very impressed with what you're doing. Well, I appreciate that. One thing that I have found over the years, um, say I've been in this hardcore since 2006 or 2007, this, this particular issue. Uh, early on, my focus was more on showing what was wrong with the inferior technologies, which once yeah. you get that is just, yeah, there's I just agree. so it's much to, to go, say. It? Well, it's, it's, it's part of it, but it has to be, the, the key I think in, in most persuasion about things is to have a clear positive ideal that people can aspire to and with fossil fuels to show, uh, which, you know, counterintuitively in some cases, that, that, that you regard this as a, as a, you know, as an absolutely essential means to the ideal of maximizing human well-being and, and human progress for, you know, for yourself and for where you, people where you live and for ultimately billions of people around the world. And once people get that that's your orientation, they're a little bit more open to, hey, let's look at all the different uh, upsides and downsides of the different kinds of energy and and people will observe that they've been misled even in the sense of being taught methodologically not to even look at any upsides of fossil fuels or not to any look at any downsides of wind and that that's usually a powerful realization that people have that wow I have not I didn't even consider that there could be anything negative I, I have a certain kind of bias and or I assumed that if we are putting more soon to the atmosphere it might it must be a catastrophe instead of right. be you know considering the possibility that it might not be uh, particularly significant uh, at all and defended that well, that that's a lot of it yeah that's a lot of, I agree because the count the 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 the, 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 the countering of what I what I say or have said in the past has always been 
can, well, what do you provide, what can you provide as a solution then? What's your solution to the issue of our energy issues, right, our energy problems? And, you know, inevitably I would always say, well, stop going this down this road of, of these renewable energies that are so inefficient, ineffective, non-dispatchable, intermittent, and costly. Why, why go down that road? And because that's kind of a negative way of going about it, it's always, it always meets a brick wall, right? Well, in, in Ontario, in particular, if if people are so obsessed with CO two, you are you already mentioned, they're they're uh, they're gutting the capacity of their nuclear and you know perfectly good, efficient nuclear and hydro things that are already built. So right. their operating costs are super low. They're uh, I mean you know, no pollution really of any kind. And so part of it is just why are we why are we looking to solar, and why are we so prejudiced in favor of building these massive installations to collect uh, reliable unreliable energy sources? Why you know why aren't we thinking about building more nuclear plants? Right. And that that at least I mean that's that's I don't think that's necessary in the sense that um, I mean ultimately one has to because fossil fuels are so important one has to be able to uh, to champion them, but uh, there's this idea that that the energy that's being used pre-green energy is somehow bad. Versus, no, this is this is the state of the art. We use it because it's good, and we shouldn't be. We should use wind energy if and when it it becomes just as good, which includes it can it can meet basic standards of of not endangering. Uh, People's health. So anyway, um, uh, I think that I have reason for optimism over time, just because I, I keep trying to find better ways of explaining it, and I find that that works. Uh, the scale of the problem, though, is huge in, you know, in Canada. It's it's I wouldn't say it's bigger because Canada is a smaller country uh, population-wise, but the stuff is is very entrenched, and that's why I'm very big on people just sharing things using you know using the internet using modern media uh, so people can share this podcast you know people I think will hear about the story uh, definitely my book is, is made to be shared and we have hundreds of things on our website that can be shared do you do you have any uh, is there anything you've created or do you have any web presence or any uh, any way people can reach you if, if you in fact want to be reached well I, I... I did start a web web blog on my own called Rural Grubby's Wind Watch. Um, basically, uh, when I first started trying to um, uh, get information out with regards to the wind industry in my region, right? And uh, I found that really uh, onerous to keep up. So, but it's still on on site, and I. But I, it's very outdated. I haven't really. Um, posted anything in the last few years, and uh, because I was getting a lot of very negative feedback from, actually, I believe wind wind developers, they were always, um, you know, just this constant accusing of of being uh, a NIMBY and uh, denigrating my my comments about fossil fuels and um, and showing how wind wind was uh, not meeting to the needs of or the claims that they were making right 
and uh, and trying to find the the actual data to show the the reports and, and information to show that you know this is just technically a bad idea. Number one, number two, it's you know environmentally a, a, a really poor solution, and and number three, it's just economically makes no sense. So um, I I was trying to find information and put that on the website and. It just seemed like it generated a lot of negative feedback, and I got r- really um, burnt out from that, and and uh, kind of depressed actually about it. So I kind of stopped. But if people want to reach me, they can certainly. I still get uh, notifications from that site. What is it? One more time, and we'll post a link. It's called Rural Grubby's Wind Watch. But if they want more information in Ontario's situation, there's two good websites. One is Wind Concerns Ontario. And the other one is Ontario Wind Resistance. And there's a couple of uh, smaller localized websites that are they, you can link from those two main ones if um, people want to know more about the wind development in their own region. And uh, it, it's, it takes a long time to understand how it's going on in Ontario because there's so many projects and there's so many people fighting their own fight in their own backyard. That um, you know, we 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 tried to coalesce as a group of people to try and fight it, but it became very onerous being, because the the geography is so vast, right? And there were so many projects uh, going in all at once. It was very difficult for people to to help support other regions. But there is a lot of information on those two websites. Well, one one final thought I had is that. Because I'm thinking of ways to to I always like to think of ways to do things more efficiently or to scale them better, and yeah. it's true that you know individuals such as you writing their own blogs that can be just very onerous and it's hard to get circulation and you might you got a lot of negative feedback in in particular which can be tough. Uh, I think I'm also on Facebook and I'm also on Twitter. Okay. Well, they can. I'm rule grubby. At rule grubby is my Twitter handle, and Facebook is under my my name. Uh, so, so just just one one thought though, in terms of how people listening can help, which is it's worth if you know anyone in media, or even if you don't, if there are outlets, radio, television, uh, certainly print, that cover news. Ask them why they're not covering these stories because that. Oh, I have, <laughs> I have asked. You. No, no, I know. I, I'm sure you have. I'm just saying that they should be getting pressure on a daily basis oh, to be talking about these, and 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 there needs and you know I'm in more of a position to do that than a, a lot of people just because I, I I know more people and have a little bit uh, broader audience than most people. Um, mm-hmm. But that would be just a good thing to, you know, just go back in the last five years of the New Yorker or the New York Times or the Washington mm-hmm. Post and how many right. stories are there about this suffering and then how many references to pseudoscientific studies are there to try to show that you're not allowed, you shouldn't be allowed to drill uh, yeah. for oil. It's, it's, it, I think, I think that just, just really pushing for that and demanding demanding that of the media either either they'll get it or they can be outed mm-hmm. uh for for not doing it but it's right. it, it's I, their I job to tell these it's not the yeah. job of of every victim to, to start their own you know media outlet 
and right. try to scale that to a global level. It's the job of the people who have a global audience because of their credibility in reporting the news exactly. to to tell people. So that 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 I haven't thought about that too much before, but uh, mm -hmm. so that's a thought that could be helpful to audience members. So everyone can let me know what they think of that. I also administer a small website called uh, www.illwind.org, and that's I I took that as an initiative. It's on the Ushahidi platform where I'm trying to compile information of pe for, from people directly and from the news as well um, about all the negative effects the, from the wind turbines uh, in their region. So it's a worldwide platform, and whoever wants to log in a report or submit a report of their particular problems for their region, they can do that. And it's categorized by the different ailments uh, that you are experiencing as well as wildlife or avian uh, mortalities and uh, um, wind turbine uh, collapses and fires. I've uh, got a category for that as well. So if people are interested, they, I have about 757 reports at this time uh, worldwide. A lot of them are from based on news feeds that I get. Uh, there's also a U.S.-based a good website, U.S.-based one called News Industrial Wind Watch, and uh, uh, they um, they have a lot of information there as well. If people are interested in finding out the other side of, of wind development, and, and um, uh, uh, terrific. Well, we're going to wrap up now, but I just want to thank you, Colette, for well, your courage. Uh, I. I, I feel like my job is a lot easier than yours in, in that sense. I remember when I was a student at, at Duke University and I, I wrote a column which addressed some of these kinds of things as well as others and I got 59 negative letters to the editor and zero mm -hmm. positive. And right. uh, for whatever reason I did not find this very deterring. Uh, mm -hmm. But I found that as I became a professional writer the, the balance was just much, much, much more at least there was a balance of a lot of positive things, and of course, I, I enjoyed getting uh, getting your email. So hopefully, um, you'll get some good feedback from listeners of this show who can go to your various uh, sites and and I, yeah, I, I think hopefully this interview will do some good for for your cause, and we'll definitely keep in touch. I appreciate your help, Alex, and again, I thank you for your hard work too, and um, it's. Let's hope for the best. All right. Sounds great. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Bye-bye now. Thanks again to Colette McLean for joining us on the show. I found her story uh, very powerful, and it's, it's very upsetting how badly people get treated for advocating the right views. And some of you have seen me go to various protests on Occupy Wall Street and People's Climate March and anti-Keystone protests and whatever. And I think people are under the impression, well, I get a lot of negative feedback and that must be hard. Uh, but I think I'm lucky in the sense that because it's my job, I get a lot of positive feedback, and also just it's it's my training to to be able to deal with anything. So it doesn't 
it doesn't feel at all personal or disheartening when somebody blasts me or something like that. It's usually just a question of do they have any legitimate point at all? Is there anything worth responding to? Uh, if not, it just it just disappears. But you know, there are people out in the field who don't have any. It's not their profession. They don't have the the trained capability to deal with these kinds of things, and they're not getting the same degree of positive reinforcement that I am. And I think that their jobs are a lot harder, and, and I hope that at least in Colette's case, this interview makes it easier. So if you appreciate her story, definitely contact her uh, at some of the links she mentioned, and we'll put those uh, on the website. Also, the, the point that I made about journalists I think is really important. We need to find ways to pressure journalists to cover all of the different stories pertaining to energy and environment. And right now, they're telling an incredibly prejudiced uh, and therefore non-objective and therefore you know, misleading and, and necessarily going to lead to bad consequences tale uh, about the different technologies vying to power our civilization and they're completely ignoring the massive massive downsides of attempting to do it via solar and wind and the massive massive upsides of continuing it to do it uh, even more so with sol not with solar, sorry, solar only in the form of concentrated solar from millions of years ago, which would be fossil fuels, and then nuclear and hydro. So, yeah, lots, lots and lots of work to be done, but I think that getting this kind of story out is a good thing. Uh, it's part of why I was eager to have a power hour about it. Now, up to all of us to pressure news outlets into covering such stories, into telling people the truth, because people actually understand how the industrial world works in relation to human life. It is unbelievably <laughs> easier to, to get them to reach the right conclusion since, since they have the whole basis of that and, and understanding what causes good things and what causes bad things. And with that, we'll wrap up for today. As always, if you have questions, comments, love mail, or hate mail, you can email me at alex at industrialprogress.net. Make sure to check me out on Twitter at, at Alex Epstein or at Go Industrial for Center for Industrial Progress. And then on Facebook, you can type in all of our different names, but there's uh, facebook.com slash the pursuit, pursuit, the pursuit of Energy, which is me, facebook.com slash I Love Fossil Fuels, uh, and you can look up Center for Industrial Progress as well. Uh, I love nuclear, all kinds of all kinds of good stuff. With that, let me just make sure we look at my notes and make sure that we don't have any uh, urgent updates. Oh, of course, make sure to subscribe to the newsletter. Go to industrialprogress.com. Enter your email in there. Uh, we'll have some some new announcements uh, soon, including we have a new. Uh, intellectual scholar coming on who have a lot of new cool speeches not just on energy but on some really hot topics like GMO and all the different agricultural issues so that that should be really fun um, and we actually have another power hour scheduled to tape this week so that should come out in the next week or two as well and I have a lot of I'm, I'm starting to get back into power hour uh, because I'm really interested in formulating policy for the next election. And so there are lots of guests I want to bring on to pick their brains and, and to have you benefit from that process. So, 
Until next time, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.